bits and pretzels inspire you. You will figure it out. This is clearly the place to be. Servus, everyone. This is Britta Wedling, Editor-in-Chief of Bits and Pretzels, and I welcome you to another episode of this podcast. For those of you entrepreneurs who look for alternative ways to get funding during the corona crisis, where so many of the traditional VCs have tightened up their purses, this episode hopefully helps to give you an idea. My guest today is Michelle Romanov, the co-founder of Toronto-based revenue share VC firm ClearBank. She funds startups through equity-free investments with the promise of being specifically founder-friendly and the idea of setting companies on a much better path for profits. Founder-led companies have been far more successful than ones that have been led by the board. In Silicon Valley, where the traditional equity-based VC model is still more or less the norm, Romanov and her co-founder made big noise with $1 billion in investment only last year into almost 2,200 startups so far. During the corona crisis, ClearBank finds itself in a unique position since it largely invests in e-commerce companies that have seen an uptick in usage since people try to avoid supermarkets and store due to the rules of social distancing. In our podcast, we discussed why in Michelle's view, no VC is the better VC. Her perspective on the upsetting lack of female investors in the VC world and how she leads her company with her co-founder, who's also her partner in her private life. If you want us to keep you updated on what the corona crisis means for entrepreneurs and everything else that's important in the startup world, and you want to get the next episode of this podcast delivered right to your inbox, please sign up to our media newsletter, Bits Daily, at bitsandpretzels.com slash media sign up. Again, that's bitsandpretzels.com slash media sign up. All right, let's hit it off. We are here with Michelle Romanov. Thanks, Michelle, for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. It's safe to say that you're a serial entrepreneur yourself. Yeah. Uh, you actually started five companies uh, before your 33rd birthday, which is like quite impressive, uh, I have <laughs> to you. say. How did you experience the VC industry and what brought you to the idea to actually change something about the way uh, money is raised in VC today? Yeah, it's a great question. So I've done everything as an entrepreneur. My first business was a caviar fishery, believe it or not. Uh, so I moved out to the East Coast and built a fishery from scratch. Uh, I then built an e-commerce company, an app that we sold to Groupon. And then, you know, something really interesting happened. I was asked to join the cast of the Canadian version of the Dragon's Den television show. So, It's like the Shark Tank Exactly, thing, right? the Shark yeah. Tank. Uh -huh. Um The show's now made in 28 different countries. It's a series of investors that invest in, in founders uh, live on television. And one of the things about filming that show is we see 250 pitches in 17 days. And I just kept seeing all these founders that were coming on the show, giving up huge portions of their company to basically go buy Facebook and Google ads. And I actually remember there was these guys that made these like wooden iPhone cases and they're on the show. It's a father-son team. And they're like, look, we've done a million dollars in sales. We need a hundred thousand dollars. We're willing to give up 20% of our company. Which is a lot. Which is a lot, which is a lot. And again, they didn't, they didn't come from a world where they knew a lot of VCs. Um, and I just kept thinking like, look, this is actually a bad deal for for both of us, right? Like this company isn't going to sell to Apple at a 10 times multiple. Um, 
the, but these founders really needed the money to grow. And, you know, they had great unit economics. They make each case for 10 bucks, cost them $10 in Facebook ad spend, and they, they sold the cases online for $50. And so I remember saying on the show, let's try something new, new deal type. I'll give you, you the life. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll give you the hundred thousand dollars you're looking for. And instead of taking a piece of equity in your company, I just want 5% of your revenue until you pay me back $106,000. So I was only charging 6% on my capital. It wasn't very much. And this really wasn't a loan. There was no fixed payment timeline. There was no compounding interest. There was no personal guarantee. You know, it was truly like the most founder-friendly structure. If they use my capital to grow, they had a slightly bigger business and I got paid back a little bit faster. And if the business slowed down, I would just wait the journey with them. Why did you decide to do that? Why did you take this approach? Why do you think it's important uh, yeah, to take that no, approach? It's, it's, a good, it's a good thing. So I think what we figured out is today 40% of all venture capital dollars goes straight to Google and Facebook. So, I mean, that should be an asset class of its own. It's, it's a good if, revenue model for them. If, if, well, it's a great revenue model for them. But what it means is it means that founders are using the most expensive capital, which is always going to be equity. You give up a piece of your company, you never get back and you give up control in your company, which you don't get back to do something that by definition is repeatable and scalable. That was the whole magic of ad platforms is that we knew if we injected a dollar, we would get $4 in sales out. And so, you know, I knew a lot about um, cost of customer acquisition and e-commerce because I had run an e-commerce store that was bootstrapped for many, many years. And so we never had the luxury of being able to, you know, spend more than we were making on every single customer. And so I think that's, um, you know, that was kind of our original, I mean, I literally did the deal on the show as an experiment and, you know, this year, ClearBank will invest a billion dollars into 2,000 different companies. And so we've got a ton of scale on this. And I think it's because, you know, founders do need so much capital to to grow their user base. You know, the way you do VC mm -hmm. investing yes. uh, is a way to give more power back to founders, to founders which is yeah. which is good. I feel like it's, it's a very good thing because many founders give up equity, give up power. You have like this board, um, mm -hmm. you know, they always, you know, want to, you know, decide what you have to do. On the other hand, you have like all these entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley who you can say probably have too much power over their mm -hmm. company, make bad decisions. Yeah, yeah. We see this, at, you know, not only at Facebook. I, I mean, I feel they yep. they have to really, you know, get some, their stuff uh, done there. How do you think about this? On the one hand, giving more power to founders. Yeah. On the other hand, like, you know, giving... It's also like, like from my perspective, like an investor also gives like advice and guidance and it can be good for, for a younger founder to also... also have that uh, yeah. kind of attitude. So how, how do you think about that? Yeah. You know, I think um, the examples of probably the Ubers and the Facebook and the WeWorks are very, very small and far in between. And, and they are, became such big companies and they now have so much scrutiny because of just the size they got to. I think that, you know, big companies always have those challenges, whether it's, you know, Coca-Cola that has those challenges or whether it's a new com tech company that has those challenges. So let's maybe separate those um, for a second, I think generally, you know, when you put control back into the founders, they build better companies. And I've seen this myself so many different times. I mean, there's there's so much information asymmetry that you have with a board. It's not that your board is evil or your investors are evil. It's actually just that as a founder, for every 100,000 pieces of data you're getting every single day from your team and your employees and your customers, even if you were to write the best board deck in the world, you could still only give like one one thousandth of that information to your board because they're really only involved in in four meetings a year and maybe other a couple other touch points and so I think um, 
you know, generally there will always be exceptions to the rule, but founder-led companies have been far more successful than ones that have been led by the board. Um, generally that, you know, you should use equity dollars if you're if you're taking true risk capital. Like let's say you need a hundred scientists to try and build a breakthrough through to a disease or you're building a crazy piece of AI. Like that's true zero to one risk capital. That's exactly when you should be taking on venture capital. But I mean, if you know what your outcomes are, which is what ad spend is, you know that you inject a dollar and you make $4, you shouldn't be giving up a piece of your company to do that. And so I think, you know, the other thing is that we are at what I'd call like peak founder dilution right now. I mean, if you looked at all of these recent IPOs, whether it's Peloton or Slack or Uber, I mean, all of these founders own less than 8% of their companies. It's a a tiny percentage. When you consider like when Bill Gates took Microsoft public, I mean, he owned about half of that company. Created, you know, the most influential nonprofit in the world. Like there was a lot that came from that. And so I think, you know, there'll always be, um, examples of bad apples and and those kind of need to be dealt with in maybe a separate bucket. But generally, I think that founder dilution has gotten way too high today. And it right. actually the only, the other thing, and I think these ideas are related, is that when founder dilution gets that high, you have to build massive, massive companies at breakneck speed for it to be worth it to the founder. Because again, if you only own 8% of Uber or any of these companies, you need to make this a massive company for that to be worth it versus if the founder owned 20 or 30%, they could grow at a far more reasonable pace that I think mitigates a lot of these challenges uh, when companies really try and grow too fast. Right. And also, I mean, and just to add on that, I mean, you could also discuss, you know, the different incentives exactly. uh, of investors, <laughs> yeah. uh, like the traditional investors mm-hmm. and the founder. Obviously, you know, you have like many investors want to see companies go IPO, yes. you know, to get them their return or like sell or, yeah. you know, but maybe I'm just the founder. I want to build, I don't know, like a $20 million business and that's it. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and today that, we have, we have this huge and crazy stories about unicorns and their <laughs> billion dollar valuations yeah, and, yeah. you know, just like founders getting pushed also from investors. Um, and it's, it's, it can be a real struggle for them to have like all this, you know, all this push from all the different sides. Totally. And, um, it's kind of also an absurd way of looking at the world that you should only start a company that can 10x its size every single year, right? Like think of all the incredible businesses that grew compounded at 20% year over year, right? Most of the big, you know, Fortune 500 never grew at, at this kind of breakneck speed. And so I think you're 100% right. When you are a VC, you have LPs and then all of those people care about is how much they mark up their valuation. That is their sole and single incentive. And that's maybe not fair. They obviously care that the company does well and has an impact. But really, at the end of the day, you know, there are pension funds behind this and people that are just looking for a yield on their capital. And so they're forcing very weird incentives. And I think that's one of the amazing parts about ClearBank is that we don't need to use this lens of can this company be 10 times its size in a year or two from now? We need to say, does this company have positive unit economics and are they growing with, you know, a digital ad source? And we can say, we can give you funding and we can give founders funding. We call their product the 20 minute term sheet, because if you connect us, your data sources in 20 minutes, we can tell you how much capital we can invest in the terms of that. And that's so different to the fundraising process that is completely, and I, I'm speaking from experience, it's grueling. It is three to six months on the road. Even if you have the best company, it is a hundred meetings. It is, you know, 95 no's in that process. Um, 
And it's really, really hard. What kind of founders are you talking to? Our core customers today are e-commerce. But so, I guess you also want to meet people in person. Yes. Yeah, right? yeah. We've, we've certainly met a ton of our founders. Um, and so most of our businesses are e-commerce. They have positive unit economics, which means that they're spending less money to acquire a customer than they're making on that customer. And then they've ranged from everything from like digital apps to physical goods to different SaaS companies. Like it's a very wide range. Lots of companies you'll know, Latote. Lisa Sleep, Nectar, um, you know, all all kind of companies that are in our portfolio. Okay. So how does the system work? So so talk about that. I mean, yeah. I'm a founder. I have this crazy idea in e-commerce. I want to sell fish online yeah. or like anything, yeah. anything else. So when do I have to pay you back and how do you evaluate yeah. how much I have to pay back? Exactly. So great question. So what you do is if you have an e-commerce business that's doing at least $10,000 in monthly revenue. So we can't do true seed at this point. You have to have a little bit of revenue, but $10,000 is pretty small. Um, you give us access access to your payment processor, uh, your bank account and your ads account so we can see how your business is doing. And then, you know, we'll make an investment. Let's say we invest $100,000 into the business. You pay us back 5% of your revenue or that number can range. It can range from 1% up to 20%. So a percentage of your revenue every day until you pay us back $106,000. And after that point, we don't own a piece of your company. Um, the vast majority of our founders take more capital from us because they've been able to grow their business. Um, But um, but that's really how the structure And works. If I'm not making it, I have to pay you back the one hundred thousand. So um, we just take a percentage of your revenue. So if your revenue stops in your business, we don't go after any of the founder's personal assets, any of the assets of the business. We are reliant on just the revenue that's coming out of your business, which so is why like, we have to be very good with our data. Right. So it's we're your risk. True then. risk here. Okay. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Interesting. What kind of area do you find most interesting when you look at the European market? Like what kind of layer, what kind of business? Obviously you have a strong focus on e-commerce. Yep. That would be something that you would look into when you would, you know, invest in European startups then? Yes. Or? Yeah, yeah. The same thing. And the nice part is that we don't get to be biased. We look at businesses that, you know, do you have positive unit economics, but we don't look at what you're selling online. And so we get a lot of things that you would never imagine. I mean, I remember we've seen, you know, products like uh, a company we found called Scrunch It Curls, which is, um, you know, products for curly haired women that are typically African-American right. where drugstore shelves in the U.S. never thought the population right. was big enough to right. stock these products. Yeah. I mean, she's built an absolutely killer business in right. doing that. And yeah. it was like, it's not our job to figure it out if these are worth it. I also got a funny call from a VC being like, I have this company, they're doing $20 million in revenue and they sell these really ugly shoelaces. So he goes, I'm not going to invest because they're ugly shoelaces. And I'm like, This is so silly. Like this is exactly where VC has this enormous bias in it. Right. Because, you know, there's this natural bias where it's like, well, if, I, if I'm not the customer set, there, might, there must not be a customer set. And we've never held that to be true. And I think that's part of the reason. I mean, when you look at the ClearBank stats, we've invested in eight times more women than the venture right. capital industry right. average, which I think is amazing. Because so we didn't do that because we did stuff at the top of the funnel. We just did that because that's what the data told us to do. Right. Do you feel that you have like a different perspective on VC? Because obviously the lack of women in VC is like yeah. a big topic. I yeah. was covering it like basically from the start, yeah. moving to the States. Yeah. But nothing really happened. I mean, it's, it's a lot of... 
still like a lot of room for improvement. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not that nothing happens. You see, like, especially in conferences, you see more women on stage talking yeah. about VC, but it's still like an area that needs so much disruption. So do you feel it's like, from your perspective, it's an advantage that you have this different perspective and could this possibly help more women to enter the VC uh, world? A hundred percent. Like, because we're using data and because we're investing in so many of these great female founders that have been overlooked, that's not only a wonderful opportunity for us because I see that has, has always been an opportunity there, but it's but it's great for the ecosystem where a lot more of these female founders um, could be that. I mean, look, you know, the venture system, there's been a lot written about this, but the numbers are moving, you know, in a very, very small way. And I think part of what's happening is, you know, we are putting... What's, what's typically happened in venture firms is they say, well, we need a female partner. And so they bring on a new partner, which by definition is the most junior partner. And when you're the most junior partner in any structure in the world, you have the least clout. Right. And so then you're telling the female partner to meet all the female founders. And female founders, just right. because there's been less of them, are generally higher risk or perceived as higher risk because there's been fewer billion dollar outcomes. Um, some of that's based on funny. Some of that's based, who cares how that's based? So now you're asking the person with the least clout in a firm to bet on the highest risk things. If you're at the lowest in the totem pole, it's actually probably better for you personally to do the lowest risk deal where you take, you know, the, the two dropouts from Stanford and you say, right. let's, let's back these right. guys. Yeah. And so I don't think I think that people's hearts are in the right places, but I don't think they're structurally set up to solve that. Because when you look at those dynamics, it's very, very difficult to see that that is actually going to solve the problem. Because what you need, especially as a female founder, is you need people to take risk on you. Because today, statistically, you do look like you are you know, riskier just based on the outcomes we've had. In 20 years from now, it's going to look totally different. But today, I think we can, ClearBank, the ClearBank solution can be a huge part of solving that problem. Because you look at the data because more? Because we look at the data. Because we actually just don't look at gender. We don't listen to you pitch. That's not a part of it. And we don't need a business that makes sense to us, right? You know, you know, you know what I find so interesting? The technology industry is so much based on technology, data. But when it comes to, oh, where do I invest? I just placed the bet on my guts and not on the data. And I feel there's like a big advantage in tech investment to actually look at the data and make a decision based on the data. And I don't understand why this is not happening more. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you correctly said it all. For an industry that talks about disruption, they haven't disrupted themselves and they haven't used this level of data science and machine learning that you should be able to have. Um, they've used a lot of it based on relationships and early heuristics and gut. I think this is something many people talk about. It's like the relation between, you know, the lack of women in VC, mm -hmm. which also leads to the lack of female founders getting funding from VC companies because, yeah. you know, you obviously invest in somebody, you know, who is like kind of similar to you or, you know, where you see yourself in as mm -hmm. a younger, younger yeah. self, younger version. So, so talk about how can we, we can break this cycle yeah. actually. Yeah. I think, I think, you know, it's data that breaks the cycle. Um, and it's exactly the story. So I ended up starting a, a nonprofit uh, with Richard Branson. He agreed to be our entrepreneur in residence. It's called the Canadian Entrepreneurship Initiative. And it's all about getting more women um, to start companies and encouraging them with resources and a bunch of other tools. But I think, I think you do need to change the model because the model of a human investing in another human will always be prone to these biases. I mean, that's why they say VC is a business of, of pattern recognition is 
well, you know, did I see, you know, a founder that looked like this, that described his business in this way and that did this? And so, you know, the first limitation with VC that we talked about is that there's this huge um, standard where you have to be able to grow a business at 10x every year, which is crazy and discounts many, many, many businesses that should be successful. And then the second thing is you look for patterns that you've seen before. So that introduces more bias. And the third way you introduce more bias is you really use the lens of would I use this as a customer? And so that's why something like Peloton, you know, I would call a very overfunded company because every VC was like, of course I need a $3,000 spin bike, right? With an iPad on it. And look, I have a Peloton. I love the product, but like, you know, it's a very specific demographic that can afford a $3,000 exercise bike. Absolutely. Whereas, you know, you know, five years ago, I'm pitching a couponing app that's digitizing coupons, that's saving, you know, 200 million Americans, 20 bucks a week on their groceries. And VCs would look at me and they would say, you know, I'm going to ask my wife if she would use this. <laughs> and, and, the, then, and, the, and, the, and let me, and then they came back and said, well, my wife said it's, it's a great idea. No, it was even worse because I mean, they're all millionaires. And so I'm like, I, at some point, right. you know, the, they first, don't need coupons. the first time I was polite. Right. And the second time I said, please don't do that because oh your wife God. is, is actually not in our demographic. Like, I don't think your wife cares. People that shop at Whole Foods don't care about saving $20 on their groceries, but two thirds of Americans, 20 bucks is a lot every week on their grocery bill. And so I think that's, again, this, this third level of bias you get where it's, you know, are you really looking at market size or are you looking at something that you and your circle would buy. And so look, the only way we're going to get rid of this is by just using data. I'm not optimistic about, you know, how do we add all of those pieces and solve all those problems. What do you feel is a challenge to your business model or to, to your way to run, um, venture capital? Um, you know, I think that it was what you were, like you mentioned earlier, this idea that VCs can sometimes be very useful because they can be in your business and be, you know, helpful one-on-one. And so our model was we look at things in a totally digital way. We don't take control. Um, but there actually is lots of founders that do want that advice and that mentorship. And so one of the things that we established um, in the last year was a venture partner program at ClearBank where people could actually have access to some of, you know, these great entrepreneurs, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, Ryan Hoover from Product Hunt, Harry Stebbings from the 20 Minute VC. Um, and they're all available to then, you know, kind of mentor and talk to our founders, which is a really interesting way of thinking about it. And so we're not providing you, you know, the type of mentor, you know, the type of advisor that's on your board and is going to force a decision, but we are providing you that same level of talent um, that can give you advice. Do you feel that's like kind of a lag on your approach that, you know, people probably feel, oh, you know, it's probably not so important <laughs> because it's not their money. You can make this argument that, look, you need to have skin in the game to really care. But as we've seen, sometimes skin in the game, especially when there's too much skin in the game, um, really, really changes incentives, I think, in a lot of different ways. And so... Um, Ultimately, I think I think founders have to make that choice, and we're we're not telling anyone that they shouldn't take VC or that they shouldn't take that. We sh- we're saying people should be very smart about you know what they're using the capital for, and if they're using the capital for things like um, ad spend and things like inventory, there should be way cheaper capital to do that. If I'm a European startup and I want to work with you, mm-hmm. what do I have to bring to the table? Yeah. Um, you, it's like clearbank.com. And then we need to see, um, your payment processing data. So you connect that through an API, uh, your bank account data, 
Um, and then your ad spend data. So it's how you're spending and how your ads are converting. And that's the data we typically look at. And then from there, we can give you uh, the terms of our, our investment. Any country you look specifically at when you look at Europe? Germany, for example, Bavaria, Munich. <laughs> um, we're we're very excited about you know the UK, about Germany. Um, there's been so many incredible businesses that have been built here, and we would love to give uh, some of those founders more funding. Anything you find special about the European ecosystem? Yeah, founders have been much more disciplined than American founders. And we've seen that almost universally across the board that, you know, the businesses make a lot more sense from an earlier stage. There isn't these insane valuations that are happening um, at very early stage companies. And, you know, they've, they've built really strong companies with, with great economics. Um, and so I think we're very excited and they've, they've been very creative. <laughs> Now we are virtually moving over to our Bavarian beer garden bench and have a steen of beer. Uh, and now, obviously, we have to say cheers. Cheers. I or, love it. Or prost or whatever you say. Is there like anything specific you do in Canada? It's definitely cheers. Or or if we're with, uh, we're with the Ukrainian friends, it's Nazrovia. <laughs> So does it help to be a TV personality to get access to, to founders or to interesting ideas? You know, certainly. Like the show has been an incredible window. And I think the show, I, I would really credit for giving me and, and my co-founder this idea in the first place that, you know, just just seeing that this is what was happening in the ecosystem. Um, certainly we get a lot of, you know, companies from the show. But now, you know, now we've, this year we'll invest in 2,000 different companies. So a lot of those folks have have found us through our own outbound strategies. We work with a lot of different venture capitalists ourselves, because if you think about it, the average VC is going to see 400 pitches in a year. Maybe they're going to invest in like five to 10 of those businesses. So that's a lot of wonderful businesses that they're seeing that you know, they couldn't fund. And so they can pass them on to us and we can be a funding source for them. And they do this? Yeah. 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 We work with, we work with a ton of different VCs because again, there's a lot of good incentives here for venture capitalists as well. I mean, the media will always say like, look, ClearBank is disrupting VC. Right. Which you are. Which, which we are, are which yeah. we definitely are. So they must hate you. <laughs> but, but not true because, um, they care about dilution too, right? After, think about it. If you're a VC and if a company says they need to raise $10 million, but $5 million dollars needs to go into user acquisition and growth, they can raise $5 million. They can raise from the VCs, they can raise $5 million from ClearBank. And those VCs have taken, you know, half of the dilution, especially the next round. Um, they don't have, their stake doesn't get diluted as much. And so, you know, as soon as VCs are invested, they actually care about dilution as much as the founders do because they want to keep their percentage on the cap table as well. And they're not even hating you like a little bit. <laughs> I think, um, I think, you know, it, it totally depends. I think the good ones completely see that, that this should and, and can be a different asset class. Um, but you know, you don't, uh, you're not a true disruptor unless there's a few people that, uh, that don't like you very much. <laughs> your co-founder, Andrew D'Souza, who is also your partner in your private life, which is like interesting. How did you come up with the idea to start a company together? Um, You know, so I think we both acknowledge that this was probably, um, you know, a, a pretty high risk bet. We had started mm -hmm. dating. Andrew's a great entrepreneur. And 
then we just started brainstorming. And this really came from like, we had such different backgrounds. Like Andrew had raised all of this venture capital before, had been, you know, the, the guy that was brought into the company to, to do the hundred meetings and to raise the series A and to raise the series B. And so he was like, you know, this process is just exhausting. And, and it's really hard when companies don't know how to do this for them to raise money. And for me, I had bootstrapped all of my companies before this. And so I think it was, you know, both of us really talking about, you know, what's broken in the fundraising system and how we could fix this and and make it easier. And, um, you know, literally started brainstorming in, um, it was, it was my Chicago apartment at the time. Uh Uh-huh. When was like, how long ago was that? This is almost five years ago. So this is, oh, wow. Um, end of 2015, you know, made a video in my apartment to apply to be in the YC fellowship, uh, and then moved (laughs) down to San Francisco to start, you know, the company. Um, basically Y Combinator, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So, Uh um, yeah, that brought us to San Francisco. We moved a team down there. We all lived in a house together for uh, almost six months in San Francisco. At uh, Wow. Where, where in San Francisco was that? We had two. We had one house in the Sunset and one house in uh, in Russian Hill. Uh, the house nice. in Russian Hill also had many ants along with us in the house. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was an amazing way uh, to, wow. start the, to, to start up the company. And, and, you know, in my mind, it was, you know, he was he was one of the best founders I could work with. And Andrew and I joke with each other, you know, if he was running the company alone, the company would have gone bankrupt eight times already. And if I was running the company alone, the company would be half the size. And so oh, really? this really strong kind of push and pull between, you know, him fighting for growth, me fighting for profitability and unit economics. And that's, I think, created um, a much stronger company, but certainly hasn't come without uh, its fair share of, uh, of tug of war. I mean, you, you guys literally take work home, I guess, right? You know, how, how do you deal? How do you deal with that? So, I mean, I think my perspective is like a little bit different. So I've, you know, I've been a founder my whole life. I've had co-founders my whole life. And there's just, you know, there's just some things that that co-founders are always going to disagree on. Like you're never going to perfectly agree on how to price your product. You know, that doesn't mean you, you love each other less. It just means that's a conversation you have to have as co-founders. And in many ways, you know, we can have a really tight iteration cycle because we do spend so much time together. And so, you Uh know, we'll go home and if we haven't agreed on something, it's like, we'll talk it out. And by the next morning, we have a solution that we can give to our team. So there's never like these long periods of time where it's like, well, the co-founders are fighting. We don't really know what to do as a company. Um, And so we, we iterate pretty quickly. And then, you know, I think there's this like notion that we kind of talk about work like all the time and certainly like, Uh you know, we, we love this company and, and think about it, but you know, when there's, when there's nothing, you know, crazy or urgent, um, you know, happening, we, we have lots of weekends where we don't talk about work and, and do other things and, and, uh, you know, haven't, don't, don't have that problem where we just, you know, all day long talk about this. I think it makes it, it would, it would make it a very unhealthy relationship is all we did was, was, you know, do this together. How do you and Andrew split up their responsibility in your firm? Um, how do you separate the business? Yeah, no, it's a it's a good question. I think that I have done far more of the um, external stuff around, you know, fundraising, partnerships, um, 
you know, building internationally. And Andrew has managed so much of what has happened um, internally, which is, you know, every other part of the business. And then the biggest thing is, you know, we manage without a lot of ego. And so when we have different projects that are not going well or one of us can't handle, it's like, okay, one of us will take that over um, and share that Mm -hmm. with our team. Mm-hmm. So there are actually several examples of um, founders who are actually married. Uh, Julia and Kevin Hart, for example, co-founded Eventbrite, which went public uh, on the New York Stock Exchange in 2018. Diane Green and Mendel Rosenblum uh, were on the co-founding team of VMware, which sold to Dell in 2015. So I like kind of married founders, the secret weapon of the technology world? Yeah. Um, well, Andrew and I aren't quite married yet, um, but we have been together for now a number of years. Um, but I think I think it's a, you know, it is certainly not for everyone. Um, but when it works, I think it can be really magical um, because there is just such, you know, there's so much trust and, you know, there's, there's such a tight feedback loop. Um, and so we've seen, yeah, those examples, we've seen the house founders, like there has been tons of amazing examples of, of couples that have built, uh, that have built incredible businesses. And, you know, some people might be like, well, you know, there's probably more risk because there's, you know, a Mm -hmm. relationship involved here. Um, and I would argue like, there's risk with any co-founding team. In fact, there's, I'd say there's more risk with conventional co-founding teams because when co-founders start to fight, um, you know, there's, there's no other love kind of keeping them in, uh, in the relationship. And so, um, you know, it's certainly something that, uh, we've had a lot of people, you know, completely believe in us from the beginning. We've had some people be hesitant. Uh, we had an investor that said no in, you know, the, the seed in the series A, and I think they paid, right. you know, a hundred times to come in later. Uh, and wow. so, you okay. know, you get, um, you get all sorts of people that, uh, that think of the relationship differently. And how does it work together in your firm? Oh yeah. I mean, first of all, I think you have to be totally comfortable and confident. You know, the people have different skill sets because I always think that you, you get the maximum event when you, people can use their superpower. You know, you don't become an incredible leader by just eliminating a few of your weaknesses. It's really by doubling down, um, mm-hmm. on your strengths. And so I think that, uh, you know, there's like Andrew's an incredible visionary is like constantly has new ideas, is always thinking about how we iterate, change our product, you know, become better. Like that's, you know, so much of him. I'm like a operator at my core that cares about, mm-hmm. you know, how do we generate efficiency? How do we, you know, motivate teams? How do we, um, continuously improve. And so, you know, our economics are stronger so that we can continue to go out and, and, you know, lower prices towards our customers. And so I think, you know, we have a lot of different things that, that we become good at. And we, we really try to have no ego when we're like, okay, that's something that you have to do. And this is something, um, that I have to do. And, you know, it's the other advantage of being coupled. There's just so much trust between the two of you. Mm-hmm. But but I mean I I guess that there are like some moments even though you, where you like kind of disagree on things uh, concerning the company right so so how do you deal with the situation of like disharmony Yeah I mean I think um, you you learn to communicate really well and you learn that there are you know 
what 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 are the the hills that you want to die on? Um, because mm-hmm. you certainly can't like not everything is important, um, but there are some things that you just really need to take the time to go through. And then the biggest thing is, look, Andrew and I aren't going to agree on everything, but we do need to come to consensus because the most dangerous thing you can do in co- in co-founding relationships um, is is have a different consensus because your team, I mean, it's like kids, parents figure out immediately if mom is saying yes and dad is saying no. Right. And, <laughs> and teams are equally as smart. And if you do right. not go united front um, on things, and, and you know, I think that the other thing is like, we're transparent. Our team sometimes knows that Andrew and I stand on different places on certain issues, but you know, we've made a decision and then that they try with one and- thing. And then they try to play you. Oh, of course. I mean, this is human nature is like, you know, you can see there's an opportunity. Um, and so I think, you know, you, you can create a lot of mischief if you allow that to happen. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's 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 way more important to be fast and make a decision than than to be right in many cases. Right. The, the lack of focus in a company can really, really derail it. And so, you know, even when I, and Andrew and I have have different views on things, we really try and come to a consensus. We stick to that consensus. We don't change um, our mind with our teams. We don't play sides. And, you know, then if we choose a month later or two months later that we made the wrong decision, we can pivot courses. But um, we try not to create that chaos in the company. Uh, but I think it's, you know, it's it's normal and it's healthy for co-founders to disagree and pretending that we, you know, had perfect alignment on anything, you know, wouldn't be right. honest. It wouldn't be accurate. And it, and it, and it's, uh, it's, you know, it's a far more fun, fun way to run a company. So you won awards, you build successful startups yourself. You're an investor, you're in TV. What's next? <laughs> you know, I, um, I get asked this by journalists a lot and, you know, if somehow, I wasn't running this company. I would, I would build it again. And I'm, and I'm actually really serious. I think that founders, and this is not in a, in an overly fuzzy way. I think founders have our best shot at, at changing the world we want to live in. Right. And I look at lots of different examples all the time, right? You look at something like climate change, which is a big global issue that we're all facing. Now governments have dumped a trillions of dollars into this initiatives And the things that have made the biggest difference, at least in the U.S., have been, you know, building cars and trucks that are electric that people want to drive. And the Nest thermostat has made a meaningful difference on on emissions. And so, you know, I think about I think about that. And that's really the, the power that founders have. And there's always been this balance between the people that have ideas and the people that have money. I mean, you think about it, like, let's go back 2000 in years, right? If you had the idea, you were going to the king begging for money to be able to get your idea funded. And so if we can just make this a little bit easier and a little more fair for founders to get the funding they need to grow their business, I think I'm pretty excited about uh, what we can build. Coming to our either or game uh, right now, which is the next part of our podcast. Um, and uh, this is uh, how it works. I give you two words and you have to choose one and explain why you choose that. And uh, the first one obviously is bits or pretzels. Oh, um, bits could mean too many different things. And so pretzels is definitely a safe choice. <laughs> and pretzels are delicious. <laughs> Nerd or extrovert? Nerd or extrovert? Um, oh, I want to say both. I'm such an extrovert, but I'm also such a nerd. Uh, but I would probably go with extrovert at the end of the day because I do get all of my energy from being around other people and founders. Dragons or sharks? 
Oh, definitely dragons because I'm on the Dragon's Den show and the Shark Tank <laughs> is the American one. <laughs> right. Numbers or ideas? Um, numbers. I think numbers can, can show you such an interesting idea that you didn't have before. And so um, I would say numbers. Instinct or intellect? Um, you know, I would have said intellect my whole life. And I think that in the last two years, I've really learned to trust a few of my instincts, uh, that I've developed as a, as you know, a career as an entrepreneur. Um, and so it's been, it's been, that's been an interesting journey for me because I've had some, some weird moments where I've very much relied on data and then I've like but now I'm, you know, things are moving so fast. I'm like, huh, I have a hunch on this. And then I go look for data to see if I'm right or wrong. Um, and so that's, that's what I'd say on that one. Is it like anything that happened two years ago where you said, well, and then I realized I have to, you know, listen more to my instincts or my gut feeling? I think I found a couple of big problems, probably six months before the data would have even showed they were big problems. It was like a feeling I got. I was like, this doesn't feel efficient or it doesn't feel like we're making progress or there seems to be a problem here. And in some ways, it, you always think you're going to be faster with numbers, but numbers actually take a lot of time to pull and a lot of thought on how to do. Um, mm -hmm. But sometimes when you have a hunch, then going to investigate that hunch becomes a faster way. Um, and so I've learned to trust my instincts a lot more. Meat or fish? Oh, very interesting. <laughs> um, well, I would have said fish, and then I got mercury poisoning last year. I know. Me very right. sick. And so now I'm on the meat train. <laughs> meat train again. <laughs> and again. Um, and and uh, yeah, I would be super, super scared of tuna still. But fish is delicious <laughs> if it's low mercury. I still love seafood. But yes, more, way more meat. Excited to come to Germany for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sunrise or sunset? Um, sunset for sure. I'm, uh, I'm always more alert at the end of the day. And, uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful time to transition into evening. Risk or safety? Uh, you know, always managed risk. You, you know, no risk, no reward. Um, those that don't take risk, don't drink champagne. There's a part of taking risk and, um, reinventing the world that is, that is so important, even if it pushes you completely out of your comfort zone. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for coming on the Bits and Pretzels podcast. Awesome. Well, wonderful to be here, Britta. Thanks for having me. All right. That was it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Please let us know how we do and write to us at podcast at bitsandpretzels.com. Don't miss the next episode of this podcast and subscribe to our Bits Daily media newsletter at bitsandpretzels.com slash media sign up. Again, that's bitsandpretzels.com slash media sign up. Stay safe and see you next Wednesday.